World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the World of Work podcast. Great to have you here again today. We've got a super exciting episode lined up for you. We're going to be speaking to Dr. John Boudreau, uh, who's joining us from the US, where he is, amongst other things, uh, the Emeritus Professor of Management and Organization at uh, University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business. We're going to be speaking today about a chapter that he's contributed to Um, The book that we spoke to somebody about earlier called The Secret Sauce for Leading Transformational Change. So we already spoke to Ian Siskin about this, and we're going to jump in and explore a little bit more in this conversation, uh, John's contribution to that book. So before we get into it, John, could I ask you to introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Yeah, thank you, James. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's a great pleasure to talk about the chapter in the Secret Sauce book and uh, ably led by my colleague Ian Ziskin. Um, so for me, you mentioned that I'm currently affiliated with the University of Southern California uh, in Los Angeles. I'm affiliated as a research scientist in the Center for Effective Organizations, a think tank inside the business school. And as an emeritus, just retired my professorship there after about 15 years. And before that, I was a professor for 22 years at Cornell University in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Uh, so I've had about a 40-year career doing uh, a traditional academic research and then writing books more for leaders and, and uh, workers and others more recently, particularly with my colleague, Robin J. Suthasan. So kind of a foot in both sides, both the scholarly and also the practical through the wonderful companies I've had the opportunity to work with. Brilliant. Thank you. And, and we love that sort of intersection of academic and practical, that sort of um, practitioner type world is, is, is really great. We love to yeah. explore the theory and bring it to life through practice and experience. Um, so that's brilliant. Um, Great. The, the, the book that this conversation is kind of anchored on is The Secret Sauce for Leading Transformational Change, as we mentioned. And in it, you wrote a chapter where you talked a little bit about sort of an emerging way of thinking about how we collectively group and deliver tasks in our organizations. You talked a little bit about an idea that you refer to as a new work operating system. Could you say a little bit about the new work operating system and, and what it is? Yes. And again, let me mention very prominently my good friend and co-author, Robin J. Suthasan, uh, a, a leader in a company called Mercer. Uh, and, and this was, I think, the fifth book that Robin and I have written together is, was the basis for the ideas you talked about. So think about a computer operating system. In the early days, uh, most of you are probably too young to remember, but in my case, to use a computer I needed to punch instructions uh, using a a typewriter that punched holes in a card. And you had about, um, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, 80 characters each card. So you kept typing card by card by card, and you fed them in. You went to the computer, and when it's your turn, you fed them into the machine. And the computer did only that task, and then it waited for the next person. Now, today's computers look like they're doing many, many, many tasks at once, which they are, but the way that was achieved was to divide the single processor into tiny nanosecond parts. And you can assign each nanosecond part to a different application. So still one processor, but now being fluidly assigned so that when you're not doing the word processor, it may be saving something while I'm doing this video, it may still have my email open, it can move over there and do that. So Ron and I got to thinking about the books we'd written on automation, off balance sheet or non-employee work, And we realized that a fundamental element of that was that if you kept the work in jobs and you defined the workers as job holders who could hold one or a series of jobs, those constraints, think of them as ice cubes, work in jobs is an ice cube, worker as job holder is an ice cube. That's the operating system. One work, one worker at a time. If you want to change work, you move to a new job, et cetera. In this book, we said a fundamental way, a fundamental requirement to understand automation, off balance sheet, and lots of other trends is you have to let the ice cubes melt. And they melt into tasks, maybe gigs, maybe projects on the work side. And they melt into 
uh, uh, capabilities, skills, we might call them, uh, and abilities on the worker side. Uh, and, and so now the individual tasks could be matched with individual worker capabilities rather than waiting for the job structure. Yeah, that's lovely. And, and that's a, a lovely metaphor of, of the rigid structures we have in place now sort of melting into their component parts that are then malleable at, at, at much smaller segments. Um, I guess a question for you, why is it that you think that this is emerging now as a way to think of things? Why, why are we looking to shake up what has potentially served us well in the recent history of job, job structuring and, and looking to, to move to this new model? Well, I think as as you as you point out in the in the last part of your question, James, this is a trend that's been going on for a long time. The evolution from a you know, if you go to before the industrial revolution, a good deal of work was kind of based on a household that had individual tasks or other things that it could sell, and it would go into the market to sell them. So, so people would go into the market to sell. The Industrial Revolution brought work to machinery, meant you had to gather people into a place like a factory or later an office, etc. That's been under a bit of strain for quite a while. Uh, I think it was probably five or six, maybe seven years ago that Robin and I wrote a book about uh, work about uh, uh, called Lead the Work, about work outside of regular employment, which often meant outside of jobs. Um, and, of, and of course, companies like Intel and Cisco and others have been experimenting with fluid work structures for quite some time. So I think the book seems topical now, James, for a number of reasons. Um, the trends that Robin and I were writing about where we kind of realized we needed to deconstruct, so to speak, deconstruct the work. Those trends, off balance sheet, automation, those have accelerated like everything has over the last two or three years, particularly with pressure from COVID. In addition, the, uh, the let's see, we, we've illustrated more clearly that work away from a desk or, uh, or even sometimes work away from equipment can be done, work from home, we might call it. And that, that accelerated what, what do most people say, we've moved 10 years in two years. That hybrid, hybridization of work also elevates the concept of the job and the job holder and the, the limits of those concepts. So I think what we've seen is an acceleration and then the addition of some, some significant disruptions that better illustrate what I call the edges of the work relationship where some new system is needed. Yeah. And, and if we think about this, you know, when things like this evolve, they tend to evolve because there's a benefit for doing so. You know, we, we change our way of working because it serves us better to do it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I guess I'd love to just jump in and explore the, the benefits on both sides of this. So if we do um, disentangle roles and, um, you know, the gigs and the tasks from a job and disentangle capabilities and skills from a job holder, what are the benefits of, of leading to bite size components of work for an organization? And what are the benefits for an individual as a, as a worker of having that disentanglement as well? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think on, on, the, on the side of the, the sort of uh, work engager, what we might call the company or the organization, this new operating system can, when it, when it is, you know, when it's working well and supported, it offers the organization a way to, no, number one, tap into uh, pools of workers that might not be available if you had to wait and bring someone over and assign them to a job. So you might be able to reach out even to your own workers, as many internal mar- talent marketplaces do, and ask them if they want to volunteer or be paid for a small part of work. So they take some time off from the regular job, they come over. You can see how that could be a much more fluid way of working. If you open that up and say, we're also going to be uh, tapping pools of talent outside the organization that can include traditional off balance sheet like contractors or gig or platform workers, uh, freelance workers, but it could also include thinking of ways to get volunteers customers to help with product design or thinking of ways to get work from a partner of yours, maybe in your supply chain, that might have uh, people who have skills that you need and bring them over in kind of a swap. Those are very hard to do or much harder to do when you think about it, the work having to fit into a job. Uh, so those are the benefits on the part of the company. Essentially more agile in meeting lots of challenges, just like the computer, by by letting the work melt so that you can move it around in the way that the computer moves nanoseconds of processor time. 
So it feels to me like there's something in there about the accelerated pace of change that we've seen in the world, potentially from, you know, more connectivity, uh, more technology, leading to a situation where it's beneficial for organizations to respond more quickly. And so to be able to scale up, uh, you know, to, to ramp up in one area and ramp down in another area by moving capability within the organization. I, th I think that's, um, I think that's very helpful in terms of an individual as a provider of work or labor or service, what might some of the benefits to them be? I think the benefits there uh, are, uh, again, with fluidity, think of it in simple terms. One does not need to wait for a job opening to engage in work with an organization or otherwise. Uh, or if you have a job, you're not limited only to the things that that job describes, you can melt and float to other things. So it, let me start with, uh, let's say Unilever, which is one of many, many organizations that has an internal talent marketplace based on deconstructed elements of work. Uh, I think uh, Unilever works with uh, Gloat. There's also other organizations such as Eightfold, even Workday, Oracle, have these platforms where a leader posts not a job, but a task. So instead of asking, what is the job I need? The leader is prompted to say, what are the tasks I want to post here and deconstruct what might have been a job? What we find in those, in those systems is many times uh, when, as workers begin to volunteer for these projects and consider which ones they want, the benefits that are often touted are that the workers can develop capabilities faster because they don't have to wait for a job opening or a formal training program. They can just go to a project and, that might develop them. They can demonstrate capabilities they have that aren't used in their job. Uh, Unilever has an example of designing a new product and people from all kinds of jobs volunteered for that project to become part of that team, even if they weren't, quote, product designers in a particular job. Um, and so, uh, so, so, so you can develop capabilities, you can showcase capabilities, and you can create networks. Uh, sometimes people take these tasks because they want to be known and be seen in a region or in a unit that they want. And then finally, um, uh, you, you can follow your purpose. So one of the, one of the things that is, that becomes very prominent to these is that projects that have a sense of purpose, like perhaps sustainability or diversity, inclusion, belonging, et cetera, will attract people with a passion for that purpose. It may not be their regular job, but this gives them a chance to pursue it. Now that's an internal talent market marketplace. The same sort of benefits could accrue to people outside the organization, given opportunities to join the organization without waiting for an employment contract. Uh, now that, that boundaries, uh, opening up that boundary to places like contactor platforms, freelance platforms, and maybe even communities the organization builds of people that are interested in helping, that's a bit more complex than an internal system where everyone is already an employee. But you get the idea of the benefits that might accrue when workers can move more fluidly and in a more de at a more deconstructed level. Yeah, there's a, a, something that jumps into my mind when you're discussing that is the concept of job crafting and the ability to evolve yeah. our job in a direction that serves us well as individuals and play to our strengths, develop in areas we're interested in. I, I can really see a lot of a lot of benefits for this. The yeah. distinction between the internal fluid market and the broader external fluid market does seem like there's going to be a little bit of disentanglement in there to to create a state where that works. Because certainly here in the UK at the minute, the majority of employers would have effectively an exclusivity cause on your labor. How, how do you how do you see that sort of evolving? Do, do you see us getting to a stage? How, how do we manage um, the sort of privacy and exclusivity and, and I guess data loss prevention, security, all those types of things? Have you got thoughts about how that's working? You know, it's uh, the, the one of the, so I, I'll ha I have a few thoughts, James, but this is a good place for me to interject um, uh, that uh, I have one of the best jobs in the world because if I don't know the answer, very smart people that I work with, they're going to figure this out or folks like you. And then you'll tell me about it and then I'll write about it. And then other people will put me on podcasts and say that John is really, really smart. So let me say at the outset that, that I know that the real solution to these complex issues is going to come not from me, uh, certainly, but from the really good work of, of uh, people in organizations and policymakers, et cetera. Um, and so I do think you're you're correct that the boundary becomes tricky, and uh, and I think the the models the best models that I think we see right now 
are the kinds of platforms that have been in place for a long time. Now, people might think of platform work as ride sharing or grocery delivery or something like that. And certainly those fit the, the those fit the, the, the mold. But uh, I think probably much more frequently in organizations, you already have arrangements such as contractors who, who usually don't take on a job, but take on a set of tasks or a project that uh, they've been uh, that they have a, a statement of work, something like that. Another another one would be freelance platforms, which in the early days began with work that was easily deconstructed, such as computer programming or developing an app or building a web page where the, where the, uh, the work can be easily chunked into parts, the capabilities, computer programming, web design, et cetera, can be easily seen. Those freelance platforms have expanded mightily. I'll just mention one called Upwork that folks can just click on, type it into the search engine, and it's kind of fun to type in some kind of work that you think might not be on a platform and realize that there are independent workers willing to do things like, uh, uh, you know, chief legal officer, chief, uh, 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 chief marketing officer, design products, uh, develop applications, um, even serve as interim executives. And so I think we're beginning, we've been seeing for some time, some movement to these platform-like arrangements. Um, and I think those, those, as well as the internal talent markets that I described before inside the organization, are I think the best examples that I see of the beginnings of this. Now, we also see good examples that are not platform-based, where leaders and workers just melt the work on their own and allow it to flow and maybe in a more focused way, uh, like taking um, information technology folks. One example in the book that we wrote is a company had its information technology people assigned to jobs within functions. HR had its HR IT group. Marketing had its marketing IT group, et cetera. Well, they, they realized that there were imbalances in the demand for IT work. And so they took all of the workers in all of those functionally specific jobs, created a pool of IT talent and, and that could float to whatever function needed. And the new structure of the work was to learn how to float. The new structure of managing the work was to set priorities, that sort of thing. So I think we see, we see, the, we see well-developed examples of platform models, and we see creative work at the edges that may tell us a way to do this without necessarily a platform. It's funny, as you were speaking, I actually wrote down the little phrase data pool, like the way you described it made me think of a data pool where we're circling around and drawing out what we need and, and using it in that same sort of pooled resource model. Yeah, but yeah it's, it's the, the image I got. Um, when I've worked with some organizations and, and, you know, working with leaders, I've done some work around a move to sort of remote working or hybrid working. And one of the things that some of the leaders that I've worked with have struggled to do is really to be clear on breaking down their jobs into tasks, objectives, mm -hmm. accountabilities, as opposed to providing general directions. And, and it feels like there's a, a bit of work for some individuals to do to create work that is compartmentalizable, make, you know, we can make it into bite-sized chunks. And I guess that leads me to, to ask, how far along this journey do you think we are? Do you think different industries are in different um, states of progression due to inherent aspects of how they work or what they do? Or do you think different functions are or different locations are? Are we in different places of adoption of this way of working? Cer yeah, certainly the, the phrase that um, Robin and I like best is the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I think that has, so yes, it is, it is highly variable uh, across probably very dimensions that, that uh, would be pretty predictable. So how does this future uneven distribution look? Well, I think if you look at work that was traditionally platform, web design, app design, computer programming, et cetera, for probably a decade or more, the companies that I've worked with, you know, that we've, they've always had a procurement group that could go out and hire a contractor. There's a good deal of, of, of uh, excitement now about building platforms that would show the contractor and freelance uh, sources right along with the traditional employment sources. My colleagues uh, at Allegis or AGS 
uh, put out a book and have a, an application called the Universal Workforce System. And I wrote a couple of chapters there. And there are many efforts like that to sort of marry up what is separated into procurement and what's separated into HR. So, so one of the places you see it would be, where do we traditionally use procurement, contract workers, freelance workers, and, and making that more visible to leaders? as they think about how to get their work done. To be honest, when leaders are highly pressed and they can't get a job requisition, what, what, what it piqued my interest in this was the tales from my HR colleagues about a, a manager literally taking out their personal credit card and going to a freelance platform to get someone to help with this web page design because my people in actual jobs are way over capacity on that. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, yeah sort of recruitment freezes and all of that just hindering so much of the, the agility in that space. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, I think, yep. please. It, yeah, it, it, like in my mind, I've got a sort of Amazon of labor in the future where we've yeah. got a central hub that people sort of API into and, and draw out resources and we can run it remote, remotely. And that's really, I like, I think that's a good one, James. It, it, it will, it will um, trouble you that you're thinking like me uh, because that, that suggests all kinds of mental issues for you. Uh, but, it, but I always find it great when, when uh, regular people like you are thinking uh, like me. Not, and so I think your idea is a very good one. This Amazon of work, Netflix of work. I, I, uh, when, I, when people ask me, where do we think we're going? I think if we could get this operating system completely worked out, boundaries down, uh, et cetera, you would see that the system shifts over to... AI watching transactions. So that Amazon idea is a really interesting one because Amazon, and I've checked this with my Amazon colleagues, Amazon does not have a large group of people coming up with, uh, uh, with language for each new product feature. That is not how that happens. If you put a new product out there, you don't have to wait until the equivalent of HR has fitted it in to a skills inventory or the equivalent of one, our job inventory the AI watches transactions. And as you and I type something in that we think we want, I had an interesting, an interesting one where I typed in ladder hooks and I won't tell the whole story, but it took several tries for me to end up seeing the product on Amazon that I really wanted. Now the AI watched that whole thing. And so ladder hooks now becomes language. And I think in the same way you can imagine workers approaching, as you said, this platform with their capabilities known through LinkedIn, through company inventories, et cetera. They approach the platform, which is feeding uh, work based on those interests, based on those uh, capabilities. And, and it's all being optimized and continually updated by some sort of an AI. And again, I think the model we have is any movie search engine, Amazon, probably the first name that comes to mind, but you could also think of Google, Microsoft, et cetera. Uh, I've often talked to my HR colleagues there and said, I'll be interested in which one of, one of you starts to apply your engine to work first. And maybe it'll, yeah. be, uh, maybe it'll be more like policymakers, something like that. Yeah, it's fascinating to see what, what comes and, and what comes from that you know, power of large numbers and large transactions as the language has effectively grown through the interactions of, of so many people. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's really interesting to think about. It, it sounds like we'll get potentially to a stage where we get a bit of a, a bifurcation in the providers of, of capability and labor. And we'll get some people who end up with that five-star review and have got all the, you know, the magic words ticked and, and are highly valuable and, and really well paid. And we'll probably have some people who are less effective with, you know, lower score ratings and, and, and things like that. If we think about a situation where the providers of labor in the situation are the ones in control and everyone's being sought after um, and they're being, I guess, fought over by people who want to use them, what is it that you think they'll look for in employers? So if they get multiple options of a place to pick up work, what would be attractive to them? How do we, how do we create an attractive place for people in this fluid sort of gig-based world? Well, it's really a great uh, question. And I think, first of all, um, the, you know, the features of attractiveness I'll talk about in a moment, I think are going to vary just as they would for anyone. I think what we see is a, a purer definition of work where the work that someone does may span everything from deep personal interests where they're willing to volunteer to things that they know how to do, but they expect to get paid for to things that they don't know how to do, but they can see are becoming better paid. And, and begin to develop themselves. So you can imagine that someone arrives with that kind of a, 
uh, spectrum of things. And so, uh, so for so so in terms of the features of attractiveness, James, I think you know, yes, they'll look different as we chunk up work, but a lot of them will be the same, a sense of purpose, a sense of affiliation. Uh, I think we're seeing an enormous rise, at least in, in the stated need for flexibility and, and the willingness not to take a job, so to speak, unless it embodies a certain amount of flexibility. And, and I, so I think that one, as it becomes more apparent what flexibility looks like, just, just as what happened with people working from home, as people begin to encounter this system of deconstructed or melted work and matching capabilities, I think there'll be that might become a feature that now that we see just how available it can be, we expect it. In addition, of course, there'll be all the traditional things like pay, et cetera, um, the, the, a desire for collectivism. I think that we'll, we'll see more of that kind of platform-based collectivism, where like guilds or something like that. And you already see it on sites where they develop an app or build an app for you there are freelancers that become the manager of the team and they work with people on projects the way a movie studio might, and they pick up the same people. So yes, there can be belonging, even if no one works for an organization. Uh, my colleague, Steve Barley was writing about this probably 30 years ago in Silicon Valley, how the loyalty is not to a company, but the loyalty is to your team of app developers as or deep programmers or cybersecurity as you move from place to place. One of the things that my colleague Wayne Cassio and I found when we reviewed the literature on this, and the literature is fairly sparse on most alternative ways of working, not a lot on volunteers, uh, not a lot on freelancers, but it's looked carefully at contractors. And one of the things they found is that there's a big difference in how engaged and, and how well contractors perform, depending on whether they feel connected to the organization and the people they work with, even as contractors. Now that's tricky for some organizations, particularly in the US, because if you invite your contract workers to join you in uh, fun, uh, you know, in sort of uh, fun gatherings to help them feel belonging, you, you ask them to join you in sharing your values and your value statement, et cetera, in some places in the US, probably elsewhere, that begins to look so much like they're the same as employees, that companies run afoul of, of current laws that want to chunk work into those components um, and say, as soon as you tip over or maybe using more than 40 hours or inviting them uh, or using your contract to look like the employment contract or your values statement, um, they say, now it looks like an employee. And I think that, that, that brings us to just one of the many policy areas where I think leaders need to begin to set policies thinking less about things like good jobs and more about things like good work, you know, less about formal training and more about development through this fluid system. Yeah, I, I can say that certainly here in the UK, we've got a similar set of challenges about that sort of relationship between contractor or we, we sometimes talk about, you know, like a fixed term contract, so up to mm -hmm. say 18 months. Um, some of those differences are or a challenge. And I know from working in organizations that have got largest pools of fixed-term contractors, that when you start to bring fixed-term contractors into some of those softer team-building type activities, you can also see resentment in the permanent employees who say, well, this person's paid a larger hourly rate, they get a different set of benefits, why are they not working every hour of a day in this Indeed. like definition of productivity that we see? So there's something difficult to manage in there. Um, I, I'm really sort of captivated by, and I really would love to at some point explore a little bit more of that language around guilds and that, that shifting of allegiances to almost a sort of agile fleet of labor that moves and sort of circulates within the labor market. I think there's something really, really interesting in there. And I think that sort of pack is a slightly pejorative word, but that sort of pack mentality approach to working could be something that's, that's really interesting. Um, I agree. And, yeah. And it makes me think about like, an e-sports team where they can all log onto their computers and, and flow into a different place and do a piece of work and flow out. I think there's something really interesting. There. I've, um, I've had the privilege of working with heads of HR for some of the gaming companies, the, yeah. the, that is the video games, companies like Electronic Arts, et cetera. And um, one of the things that, that, that strikes us as we work together, their HR folks and me, is that the game really does create a, a workplace in a way. If you, if you could expand the notion of work, to, to where you put your energies, you know, and, and, and it may not be, we may not even call it work, but someone could say, well, yeah, part of my portfolio of what I do 
is I voluntarily yeah. play this game for the affiliation and for other rewards that come from it. So again, what that tells me, James, is if we took the people who built the gaming platform and said, well, let's take this element of work or work generally, and let's build a platform like the gaming platform that workers can join, perhaps around projects, particularly ones with sense of purpose and that are highly desired by, by people. Uh, so you know, some, let's just take a sustainability project, very specific, and we reach out to the world and treat it like a game. There are lots of yeah. examples where big, hard problems were solved by giving the problem to gamers. A famous example of the virus to cure AIDS needed to fit into the AIDS, the, the, the cure needs to fit into the virus in a geometric way. And it turns out there are thousands of people all around the world who nightly play a game where they compete to see who can solve folding problems like that they solved a problem that the pharmaceutical biochemists could not because the biochemists weren't mathematical, uh, 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 you know, math, math, didn't work on the math of folding. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And, and that sort of world of protein folding is a, something that served us so well in the last couple of years, of course, as well. Um, that's super interesting. And it leads to, um, that, that can lead to all kinds of avenues about who benefits from work, about what the motivations for work are, about all these different aspects that, are important for us to know about when we're shaping and designing roles and organizations. I guess one of the things I, I wanted to touch on a little bit here was to do with, to some extent, the, the benefit of work in, in our lives and, and some of the reasons we do work. For a lot of people, one of the benefits of traditional work is it offers some semblance or, or some aspect of stability. And it's different in different locations. So labor law is different in, say, continental Europe to the UK to the US. But there's a, a consistency of expectation that there is some form of stability that exists from entering into a longer term contract of work. How, how, do, we, how do we feel about that sort of change in security and stability associated with a shift to this type of um, task-based or, or smaller project-based work? How do, how do we manage that offset of, of loss of stability for the individual? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I, I think we, you know, we, we, uh, uh, we've touched on some of the answers, I think. So let's, let me take it from this side. Let, I think often the question is posed with a mindset, a very interesting one, that if we move a lot of work to this kind of fluid system, then you'll have many, many, many more folks that are affiliated with work through what is today non-traditional ways. So I'm a project worker, I'm a contract worker, I volunteer, I work for multiple organizations. I think at that level, James, we um, number one, we've talked about affiliations can form at a team base. Think about a movie crew that doesn't work for any particular studio, but always gets together because that director calls on them. So there is that, which we talked about. Um, uh, and, and that can create some stability. When, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles, this is back in the early 2000s, I had many, many neighbors who worked in the film industry. And I would ask them, who do you work for? And they would say, what do you mean? And I'd say, you know, what's your job? Where do you go to work? And, and they often would say, well, it doesn't, that's not how it works. I work all over. I've worked for Disney. I've worked for whatever, Paramount, et cetera. And so, you know, the, I think there is some affiliation and a sense of belonging and a sense of all the things that an org, a sense of purpose, all the things that an organization would, would wants to create around work can be created. If we go to that extreme and say lots of work is there, James, then I think one of the many things will need to happen at the policy and social level to allow that fluid work to work well and not only reward people who can get over all the barriers. So in the UK, you already have many of these things, portable healthcare that isn't associated only with your employer. That's something that is, is true in the US. That's the way most people get healthcare, portable pensions, um, a, a, a way to have collective voice as you work for an organization. In Hollywood, the actors, craftspeople, et cetera, are part of unions. That's their collective voice. And in fact, I wrote uh, several articles about this way back in the old days. When a studio wants to develop a compensation structure for a movie team, each studio doesn't develop their own. In fact, HR is hardly involved because it's a contract work and because the union contract for this affiliated independent group of actors already specifies in some detail sometimes the exact way you'll be paying those workers. Um, so I think that there, we can envision a future if 
policy were shifted to think about work rather than jobs in which people would have secure collective uh, access to this kind of working. And then before I complete it, we've talked about examples that I would say are at the other end of the spectrum, James, where a, a company uh, sets up an internal talent marketplace, might be Unilever, Cisco, Intel, et cetera, and all the people are already employees. So you're already affiliated here, but what we're doing is allowing you to pursue your purpose, pursue your development in this task-based platform. So I would think, James, that's, a, that's another experiment you see where we sort of dial down a lot of the boundary crossing dimensions and we still dial up a lot of the deconstruction and the fluidity. Yeah, yeah. It feels like they're, they're sort of two pilot schemes running in Indeed. parallel in which we're exploring these different things. And, and, that, and everything it, in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, you know, listening to you speak about this, um, Jane, my partner who runs this uh, podcast with me, and I have effectively moved very much into this space on our own. We left our corporate roles. We, we've mm. gone out into the world on our own. We've set up a, a micro consultancy in which we work as and when we, we choose on things that suit us with different clients and have that entire portfolio and all the benefits and risks associated with that. So it's mm. just interesting to see the, the, you know, the sort of evolution of that in, in my own working approach as well. Yeah, um, very well put. Again, back to that sort of idea of guilds and, and sort of separate unions for sub areas. I think there's something really interesting in that and, and that sort of that, that sort of self-regulating approach to skill specialist bundles like the Screenwriters Guild of America, who've got their own little yes. miniature union. There's something really interesting in, in watching where we go with that approach. And as you were speaking, it felt to me like there probably would be an evolution of an entire sort of infrastructure and support network around this growth, be it, you know, training or insurance or legal aid and liability or all those things that would grow up to support this. I think that's it's, it's interesting, James, there are, there are also, um, so freelance businesses to do that. So probably the best example that I know of is one that, again, I ran across probably a decade ago, but he's now very, very famous, um, is, is uh, the person who runs something called the Rideshare Guy. And I'm, I'm going to apologize for not recalling his name, but you can look it up. And he started, maybe, I'm certainly a decade ago when I met him, providing advice to rideshare drivers about all the things that you talked about, James. And having been one and having taken the time to learn the hurdles, to learn the tricks, et cetera, um, he began this, started probably as a, you know, as a, a feed on the web, uh, maybe a podcast. And I, I believe I saw that site and him listed as one of the top influencers uh, on technology and work. So, you know, we could see the rideshare guy, we could see the visiting executive guy, you know, everybody who's learned it, providing a service of helping coaching people to, to learn how to, uh, how to get over the hurdles. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to see all this sort of evolving. It's, um, it's interesting. I can see sort of risks and benefits around it. Um, but it's really cool to see where it goes. Um, I guess we've explored a lot there about, I guess, what this new operating system for work is and, and sort of why it's evolving some of the benefits, some of the challenges, some of the ways it's, it's materializing. I guess I'd like to just think a, a little bit, in the latter part of this podcast on some of the impacts that this might have and, and some of the applications it might have for people in the workplace. I guess one thing I'd, I'd like to just start by asking is if we think about, say, a leader in a uh, small to medium-sized organization, say they've got, I don't know, 1,200, 1,500 employees working that sort of scale of organization, what might they need to bear in mind given this? How, how might they need to think about their role as a leader? How might they need to change their mindset to work to to be able to prosper under these different pilots so that's a that's a great question i uh, uh i think generally so kind of independent of company size um i think w i'm thinking back to a piece that i uh, wrote with jonathan donner who was formerly the head of development at unilever and then worked for the uk health service as well as many other organizations and he and i speak regularly because we're friends and colleagues and uh, as we were speaking about a year ago, um, he began to, to play with ideas about how leadership would change in a more fluid world, particularly as we could observe it in, in those companies with internal talent marketplaces. So in general, what, what we suggest leadership looks like is it looks more like a group of leaders. They might be managers or something higher, but the highest level leaders, heads of HR, CEO, IT, et cetera, procurement, 
those people are going to set guardrails. Um, you know, what, what projects do we put on the platform if we're doing it with employees? How do we break the barrier and go to outside workers, right? So that's high-level leaders need to learn to think about work as deconstructed from jobs and realize that means they'll, have, they'll need to set some guardrails that were implicit when we said everybody stays in their same ice cube, right? Then as the, as the managers, let's say, who, who are frontline, what they encounter now is that they may have some people in boxes on the, on the org chart with lines that connect their box to this leader. In the past, that leader knew those people work for me. Now they're going to be taking on volunteer projects or paid projects, development opportunities, and they're gonna be shared with other leaders. Um, and so, uh, so the, the group of managers who oversees this sea of workers that they're sharing to some extent or another will need to, as a team, be much more connected. What are our values? How is it that we reward? How do we keep track of what you've done well? How much does the leader who's your, let's call it your regular leader, who has the line running to them from your job box, how do they uh, account for this extra work, so to speak, the shared work that you're doing with others? And what we, so what we came up with is leadership happens much quicker because instead of waiting for the quarterly or yearly performance review, you're doing it project by project. You, instead of you knowing that you have uh, time to develop a relationship with those workers in the boxes that run to you, you now have to think about developing quick project-based relationships with teams of workers you may be sharing with someone else. So what happens, I think, James, is if you have uh, poor leadership, and I, and I don't mean that as a personal trait, what I mean is leaders that aren't prepared for this, maybe leaders that have not thought deeply about values, purpose, et cetera, or don't, don't have a collective idea of that. Well, things can go bad very quickly. Poor leadership, biases, at the worst case, biases, inequities, et cetera. As leaders start sharing, those leaders that tend to work that way are now not confined to a few people in a job that report to them. In the same way, good leadership, and particularly teams of leaders that can create a shared purpose, a shared sense of alignment, feedback about how the work impacts customers or other constituents. If you have a team of those leaders, understanding equity, understanding sustainability, diversity, those values then can emerge through the work relationship much faster than when people waited to move from ice cube to ice cube. It's interesting. It, it sounds like um, there's a need for sort of more joined up leadership as we get this more, mm -hmm. um, you know, tenderly approached to work. Mm -hmm. Something that popped into my head as you were speaking was, you know, in my old, old jobs in, in the corporate world, we did a lot of matrix management we talk about where you're sort of moving in different places and this Indeed. very much feels like matrix management sort of squared or cubed or yeah. or even even further accelerated and it feels i like think that's need. right yeah matrix right. think of the matrix having units in it that are work tasks just to take yeah. or projects rather than jobs yeah and and, yeah. and i think that's what i think that's exactly what you mean the dimensionality the number of rows goes up immensely on the, at the same time, I believe you also see solutions to things like how do we let people flow to the work? How do we combine automation with humans? How do we tap external uh, sources when we need them? And it, once you have that matrix with the tasks in it, and if we could get leaders as comfortable with that as they are with a job-based one, yeah. I think they would start to see options, agile options that simply don't appear if you're limited to the box as a job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's an old adage I heard a lot in various points, which is, you know, one of the hardest things to do as a leader is to get out of your people's way and remove their obstacles. Mm -hmm. And it feels like here, a lot of what would probably be beneficial is to do the things you spoke about, about being clear on values, ensuring consistency of values, painting a, a good vision of the future, um, freeing up roadblocks, setting some strategic uh, objectives and, mm -hmm. and guardrails, all those types of things feel like increasingly more important to do in a joined up collective approach as a leadership team. In, in You're state. absolutely right. You know, we could just to take an example, if a leader tends to hoard talent, well, in today's world of jobs, you, you see it, you know, and it comes up. It means that sometimes that leader won't let their best people go when another job opens up, but it's rather episodic. If a leader starts hoarding talent and saying, no, you're not allowed to take on that voluntary project. I'm sure I'll need you. You know, you may not have anything to do now, but your time belongs to me. And, um, just to take that example, that's something that will show up very quickly and is going to need some work because it's perfectly logical 
for, you know, I don't think leaders hoard talent to get in the way of a talent flowing system. They do it for good reasons because they see locally the payoff. And so, as you said, a joined up world will show that kind of behavior very quickly and will need attention to, to make the flow uh, to make the flow better and and uh, and more, more, I guess, more available to more people. Yeah, it's like that sort of prisoner's dilemma game, like recast in a different lens. To it is to exactly collective output. Fabulous. So you can think oh. about the negotiations between managers, right? These yeah. will it happen informally? Will we have guardrails for it? You know, how yeah. accountable will you be for being the manager that finds a way to help people flow versus the one that seldom does uh, that? And of course, your reputation will travel through the worker network much quicker. You know, yeah. you don't want to, you don't want to get assigned to that person because they hoard you, you know, yeah. and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the sort of radical transparency that, that would exist when everybody has touch points with everybody else creates yes. a really different, <laughs> a different environment. You, you spoke um, a minute ago about sort of competing with robots and AI and process automation and, and all those types of things. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, the growth of, sort of RPA and, and stuff like that in the workplace, which I think is really interesting. Um, if we sort of think about this uh, a little bit more and, and think about, you know, we, we are in this new operating system and there are things that are increasingly automated and, and there are individuals remaining in the workplace, just as, I guess, sort of a last-ish question for me. What, what do you think it is that that the humans are going to bring in these roles? What are, like, what are the human skills, what are the most human human skills that would help people really prosper in this type of world? So the automation question is a really good one, James. And, and um, for a while, I felt comfortable saying there are certain creative things that won't be automated. There are certain tactile, sensitive things, uh, it may, perhaps in a surgery or working in a plant or something like that. And I must say that I've been proven wrong so often. And AI in particular, but certainly AI-powered uh, robot, physical robots and other things are doing things that's, that I'm always surprised to see, that I would have certainly thought were human. For writing newsletters, for example, probably much to our dismay, conducting podcasts uh, together. Um, so I think there still are probably certain human capabilities or skills that probably will, will hold, you know, maybe empathy uh, the ability to form teams, those kinds of things, certain judgments that humans make. However, I think the the more fundamental uh, thing that automation brings up is this idea that it's almost always humans plus automation. When you finally automate the work, and then it changes, of course, it changes perhaps every minute, but certainly, you know, more automation gets better. That changes the nature of how the human is going to work with automation. In the book that Robin and I wrote, we suggested that, that at the task level, you can begin to look at automation as replacing the human in some tasks, augmenting the human, which by that we mean the human's pretty much doing the same thing, but with a little bit of help from automation, like a call center person who has the details of the customer they're talking to sent to their screen by the AI. And then the third one was that it, it can actually transform the work. So a good example of that is an, an oil rig in the sea or on land. And they used to need local people on that rig maintaining, uh, uh, repairing, et cetera. Now they've built rigs that are completely robotic on the rig. The, the local robot repairs, maintains, et cetera. That, does that mean that there is no human work left? No. What happened is those talented repair and maintenance humans are now in a centralized control center, getting data from the robots out on the rigs so that now if you have a super talented human who is great at a certain rig dilemma, they're no longer stuck on one rig where you cannot deploy them to another one. They're in a control center and they can now float from rig to rig. And you can just see this idea that that's an augmentation. So I think for me, rather than asking what are the skills and capabilities humans should develop to stay ahead of automation, what I suggest is that, that, that workers and leaders begin to understand automation at the task level and open up the idea of shifting the work in combination with automation. Uh, and I think, James, that's probably where we'll see this play out, even more than a general skill list. Yeah, fabulous. As, as you were speaking there about the 
you know, the uh, the specialist technician who's got a core level of skills and, and lives centrally and can manage many places. It, it made me actually think sort of, a, of, I guess, the music industry to some extent. And, and I think probably a long time ago, you know, each town had their local band and that's what it was and music doesn't <laughs> travel and you're in that space and then it broadens and you can get a CD and that's like your state or your country. And now <laughs> on Spotify, you've got that sort of breadth and breadth and breadth and breadth, which is, um, yes. which is really interesting. Brilliant. Okay. Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to draw us to a close. There's, um, there's a huge amount of fascinating stuff in here. Uh, how could people find out more about you or more about um, the Secret Sauce book or uh, more about the the new operating model of work or, or even robotics and automation and the impacts on on work as well. <laughs> well, thank you, James. That's a that's a, a, a great list of things, and I can only wish I was expert in all of them. So let's start with me. Um, I have a website where I, I sort of capture uh, things like this podcast and videos and and my writing, and that's uh, www.dr like Doctor John So drjohnboudreau.com. Uh, you can, of course, find me also on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter. Uh, and so that's another way to get connected with me. The center at USC, the Center for Effective Organizations, University of Southern California. Again, a quick web search will get you there where many of my talented colleagues are working on issues like this. Uh, when you go to my website, by the way, you'll be able to click on books and you can read about the latest book, Lead the Work, about the Nature of Deconstruction, the previous book, Reinventing Jobs with Robin J. Suthasan about automation, and the book, Lead the Work. Those are all in topical uh, topical links that you can, you can press and see everything that I've written or done videos or that sort of thing. And then there's the center at USC. And then a uh, uh, good credit to my colleague, Ian Ziskin, and, the, the, and his leadership and the group that put together the book, The Secret Sauce. And again, a quick web search will get you to a really good website about that book and the contributions in it, et cetera. I would also say connect up with Ian Ziskin on LinkedIn and his group uh, C4C, that is the coaching collective in a way that uh, put that book together. Brilliant. That's wonderful. There's loads of great links to follow there. And, and, and having looked at those different websites, I know there are a lot of good resources uh, there as well. So great. it's just time thank for you. me to say thank you very much. That was wonderful. Thank you. You're very welcome, James. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend. You can sign up for these and our newsletter, The Wow Mail, on our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io.